Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here and for worshiping with us today. I'm excited because today we begin a new study in the book of James. And James is a special book for me because it was the first book in the Bible that I ever read straight through. Now, before you get too impressed with that, let me just share with you that it's only five chapters long and it will take you about 15 minutes to read through. But For me at the time, it was a massive accomplishment. I read an entire book of the Bible, and uh, James was that first book that I read. It was a book that was recommended to me, and probably at some point, if you've been following Jesus, it's been recommended to you as well. It's a great book that lots of people love, uh, and I love it as well because it is so practical and so direct. It's 108 verses, and 60 of those verses have commands in them, so um, James doesn't leave things kind of unclear. It's, uh, he doesn't hold punches. He just says, here's what it is. And he gets very practical in terms of what it means to have a real and genuine faith that's visible um, in our everyday life. And it's a great thing because it's one thing to say we have faith in God, but it's a whole other thing to say how I live it out practically in life. And so this, earlier this year, we've been talking about the practices of grace, which are the spiritual disciplines, how we can grow deeper in our relationship with God through the spiritual practices. Practices, But this is such a great follow-up because now it's, okay, well, how if I'm growing deeper in my faith, how does it then show practically in my everyday life? And James is so helpful because he gets right down to very practical issues that we deal with and face with, face so we can really have a certain level of a, a test, a standard to say, yeah, this is what real faith looks like, responds, and acts. In fact, today we're going to be talking about how faith works in the midst of trials. How faith works in the midst of trials, which is an important thing because uh, my guess is all of us here um, face trials. Go ahead and put that there. Yeah, all of us have faced trials. It would not be hard for me to kind of pull together people and say, does anyone here have anything that's difficult in your life right now? Is anyone here struggling with anything? Has anyone, anyone here got some stuff that's going on that's like, ah, this is hard and this is tough? My guess it would not be hard for us all to come up with a list of things that are challenging, hard, difficult trials that we are all facing in different ways. And what's so helpful is James recognizes that um, and says, here's what real faith looks like in practice when we face trials. And so we want to get right to it. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, hopefully receive the handout on your way in here. Has the passage printed for you. Um, But once you find it, let's please stand um, for the reading of Scripture, and then we'll take a look at it together. We stand for the reading of Scripture, of course, because God's Word, um, we stand under His authority. Um, it's, it's not my word, it's not culture's word, it's God's word that we say, ah, we, this is what we need to listen to and respond to. And so together we get to read it and then look a little bit closer how we can be responsive to his word. James 1, beginning of verse 1 all the way down to verse 12, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. 
That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. We'll take a look at it together. Beginning right there in verse 1, it says this, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So this is the very first verse of this book. And anytime you start a new book or do a new study, it's very helpful to just kind of ask some questions uh, to get some background information as you head into it. So you'll never go wrong with the W questions. Who, when, where, why, how, all those things. Those questions are very, very helpful. And the who question that, you know, jumps out at us here in this verse because the very first thing listed in this book is James. And the question then becomes is, who is James? And so that's the very first question that we have to answer. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that there's a number of different James in the, in the Bible that are talked about. So the question is, well, who is the James that wrote this book and why is that uh, important for us to understand? And so let me just really briefly talk a little bit about, you know, who this is. But first, rule out who it's not, okay? The, the first person that may come to your mind when you think about James is James, the son of Zebedee. James and John, the Zebedee brothers, they're, uh, they kind of flash. They kind of stand out in the New Testament. You perhaps heard of uh, that James. He's very famous. Um, But that James passed away before this letter was written. So James is good, but he ain't that good, okay? So he did not write this book. That's not the James that's that's being talked about. There's another James who was also apostle of Jesus who's lesser known. He's James, uh, son of Alphaeus. So he's another one of the apostles, again, lesser known. In fact, um, he, he often went by the name James the Less. James the Less. And I, I feel bad for him because I just imagine, you know, someone coming up to him at some point and saying, oh, wow, I heard you were an apostle of Jesus. And he's like, yes, yes, I am. So what's your name? My name's James. Oh, my goodness, James and John, that's so great. And he's like, no, 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 not, not that James. And I'm James, son of Alphaeus. Oh, so you're James the Less. Yes, now shut up, right? I mean, that's, that's c- kind of how I would be feeling. That's, but that's him if you're a fan of the Chosen. It's, it's little James in the, in the Chosen. But he, he's, he's certainly an apostle of Jesus, known by Jesus. And if you know the, um, the he kind of fades out of New Testament history. But tradition uh, would say that he traveled with Thomas to India um, to advance the gospel there, and he was ultimately martyred. So he knew Jesus. He was close to Jesus, but he's not the James who wrote this, uh, this book. There's a third James in the Bible, and that is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and this is, this is interesting. In fact, he's maybe the most um, shocking person for, for, for people to think, okay, this is, the, is this the guy who really wrote wrote this but um jesus did have a brother and we know that it's jesus more likely jesus brother than the other james because if it was one of the other james it would have said 
you know, right there in the text, James, son of Zebedee, James, son of Alphaeus, but it just says James. And by the time that this was written in the, in the early church, it would have just been very well known who James is if you just said James. It wouldn't have been a questionable, who, which James is this? They would have known by that time which James was being talked about. So just similar to the sports world. If you're familiar with sports world, if you're familiar with basketball, and I say the name LeBron, you're not thinking to yourself, LeBron who? You know what I mean? You, you know who LeBron is, right? So same thing. It's, this is James. It's like, oh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. They know it. He is he very well known and respected at this time. And so because it's not those other things in history would, again, point to the fact that this, in fact, was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote this. Now, some of you might be surprised just by the fact that Jesus had a brother, um, and for, for some people who are coming from other traditions, there has been uh, kind of a tradition that's held by some that uh, what's, what's considered the, the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, um, some traditions hold that she was perpetually a virgin. And so to have uh, other siblings would be very, very hard if you're perpetually a virgin, right? So there becomes a question. Now, I mention this just because it's very important for us anytime we come across some tradition that we don't just take it because it is tradition, but that we always take those traditions and say, well, how does it match up to Scripture? What does Scripture have to say? Because Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. And so by looking at Scripture, I could very quickly and convincingly show to you that it's very clear that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had other kids. And there's lots of verses that kind of speak to that. But let me just point out one that's very, very clear. Um, In Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 3, it says this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, not that Judas, um, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So very clearly here in this verse, um, Jesus had siblings. And the first one mentioned, the second oldest, is James here. And so James is a brother. And in fact, it's not just that he was a brother, but the, Jesus had sisters too. And, you know, we don't know how many, so, but we just know it's a big family. So if you have a big family, Jesus understands what it's like to be in a big family, okay? And when you think about a small Galilean home um, and all of them packed into it, you know, he understands what it's like to be in a crowded house. So he, he gets you if that's the, your background and where you're coming from. So he did, in fact, have uh, siblings, and it's, it's clear there from Scripture now. The interesting statement that, that James makes in, in verse 1 of his, of this, of his uh, letter, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing statement um, because he's talking about his brother, right? And what's interesting about James is that although he was a brother to Jesus, he wasn't always a believer in Jesus. In fact, he started out very skeptical. He was a skeptic before he came a believer in Jesus. And we, we see that very clearly because the whole family um, was skeptical of what's going on with Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, it says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, take custody of him, essentially, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, in the Greek, out of his mind means he was out of his mind. That's truly what they're thinking, okay? 
They're like, we're going to take custody because, uh, you know, if you're James, you're thinking, I love you, brother, and I know that you want to serve God and you want to love God, but you're starting to sound like you are God, that you're saying you are God. So you need to be on meds or something, right? So they're coming in to take him um, because they think he's really, he's, he's lost it. He's gone too far in serving God. Now he's claiming to be God. He must be crazy. And in fact, it, it's it, throughout Jesus' whole earthly, earthly ministry, um, James never changes. He continues to be skeptical, skeptical and not a believer. And we see that even at the very end of Jesus' life, at the very end of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see at the very end when Jesus is on the cross and he's committing the care of his mother Mary at the, um, from the cross, who does he commit his care to his mother to? John. So he commits the care of his mother Mary to John. Now, he should be committing the care of his mother to the second in birth order, James, in his family. But James isn't there yet. He's not a believer, and so he's not an option. So he turns to John. So again, James stays an unbeliever. He stays skeptical all the way through. Um, That is until everything changes. You know what changes for James? The resurrection. See, after the death of Christ comes the glorious resurrection of Christ, which we celebrated this last Sunday. And after the resurrection of Christ, there was a 40-day period where Jesus presented himself to a number of people, including his brother James. We read about it in 1 Corinthians. It says this, um, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And it was at this point that James goes from skeptic to true believer. Then instead of being a skeptic and, and not trusting in Jesus, he trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I guess if you, you know, your brother dies and comes back to life, that's pretty good evidence, right? And I think honestly it would take a miracle like that for me to ever call my older brother Lord. So if you have a sibling, you're like, yeah, I'm not your servant or you're, you're not my Lord, unless you die and, and <laughs> you come back from the grave. Then, okay. So it, it's just one of those things that it's one of the, again, one of the amazing and more convincing evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that his own brother say, you're my Lord, because he witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is, this is James. And, and it's not just that he um, trusts in in, in Jesus at the resurrection, but he and his family become worshipers of Jesus. And we see that very early in the early church. Um, the, when the church was forming after Pentecost, we see them worshiping as a family. In verse 14, it says this in Acts 1. Um, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So his brothers are now worshipers, true believers in Jesus. And James goes on to not just be a worshiper, and a follower, but a true leader of the church. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul um, in Galatians calls him a pillar of the church. He becomes a key uh, leader in, in the church. And uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 15, he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem that they look to. When the church found itself in conflict, there was great dispute that kind of broke out among the church. It was a, it was a huge deal. That, that uh, many people were saying, well, in order to become a Christian, you have to be convert to Judaism first, then you receive Jesus as your Messiah. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were like, no, 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 no. You don't have to go to Judaism first. You can go straight to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Faith in Christ alone, not something else. And so there was this big debate, and it was at the end of this, this called the, the Council in Jerusalem. It's James who stood up, and he spoke, and everyone listened to James. 
because he was the key uh, and respected leader of the church. And it was a glorious moment because it made it clear in that moment, yes, it's faith in Christ alone, nothing else. It's going straight to Jesus, and, and it's, a, it's a beautiful moment. And so and James is a great leader of the church, uh, a person who's gone from skeptic to believer, and now he has a word for us to hear. And he wants to speak to uh, a group of people who are struggling. And let me show you, the, back to verse one. Um, we've answered the who question, who wrote the book. Now we've got to answer the question, who is he writing to? And so it says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So he's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered. Um, and just to understand the, the kind of the context here, in, in Jerusalem, the church was, you know, it was, was born and it was growing, and it got to a point, though, where there was great persecution in Jerusalem of that early church that was beginning to form and grow, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 8, and because of the great persecution under um, Herod Agrippa I, who was the, the grandson of Herod the Great, he was, it was terrible, and he persecuted the early Christians, and it was so bad that the, the church scattered from Jerusalem. That's where the church was formed, and they just, they just all scattered about. Except for the, the apostles, James and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and they stayed under that persecution, but the church scattered. And, and classically in Greek, there's a special word for it, it was the diaspora, the, the scattering. It's the, the idea of a scattering of seeds, that the, the, the early Christians, they spread out. And they were under persecution, not just in Jerusalem, but they continued to experience persecution. So James is writing to the scattered Christians who have gone out to the nations and saying to them, hey, I, I know you've experienced struggle and you're gonna continue to experience struggle. So let me write to you and encourage you. And he gives instruction on how to have faith in practice in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trials, in the midst of our challenges. And so it's so very, very helpful. In the very beginning, he starts with um, the, an attitude and approach to our, our trials and our, our struggles. And so that's what we see here in the first verse two. It's the attitude and that he wants to speak to. So he gets very practical. He says, I know you're struggling. I know you're in a trial. Here's the, your approach. Here's your, how you need to respond to the trials in your life. And he talks about the attitude. Let me show you in verse two. Here's the attitude. Verse two, he says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So a couple of things here in this verse. First of all, he says to them, I want you to consider it joy. This is the attitude that you're to have whenever you face trials, not if you face trials, but when you face trials. The assumption is we all face trials. And we understand that, don't we? We live in a, in a fallen and broken world. And if we think to ourselves, hey, things will get better when my trials are over, um, keep thinking because it's not gonna happen, right? You'll continue to face trials. And there's a number of you here who are struggling with trials and it could be different. It's, 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 um, it says various kinds of trials and that, that could be um, you know, financial struggle or a physical struggle or emotional a mental, a spiritual, there's lots of different ways that we can struggle and find ourselves in trials. So whenever we face these things, here's the approach that James says that we're to take. He says we're to consider it pure joy. Now, this is the moment that you can stop and say, well, you know what, James? Remember when you thought your brother Jesus was crazy? Um, I'm reading what you're saying and I think you're crazy too, right? And that's fair. How are we supposed to have joy 
in the midst of our trials, right? What do you mean by that? And does he mean um, that we um, take on trouble and struggle in life and say, awesome, it's so great, I love it when I face trials. Is James saying, hey, when you find yourself with the doctor and the doctor says cancer, you're like, great doc, that's great news. I hope I get hit by a bus on the way home too, right? (laughs) Is that the attitude? No, that is not it. He's not saying that, but he, he is saying, listen, In the midst of a world that is broken and you will will face trials, you cannot avoid them or get away from them. There is an approach that you can take in your trials of faith that says, I'm going to choose an attitude of joy. I'm going to choose to see beyond the circumstance to see what God wants to do. And it's an attitude we can choose in the midst of it because God can work even in the tough stuff of our life. And then the question is, well, well, how does he work? And that's where we get to see the advantage of trials. It's not just the attitude we're to have, but there's an advantage of the trials that helps us with that attitude. How can we have joy? Here's the advantage that James is wanting us to see in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our trials. He says this, verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So he's saying, listen, when you experience trial, when you experience struggle, it produces something in you and what it produces is perseverance and that word perseverance is to, it means to stay under and it's important that in trials we learn to stay under them but what we tend to do when trials hit is wriggle out of them right are you with me None of us wants to stay under a trial. We're constantly looking, how can I get away from this struggle, this trial in my life, this challenge? But God's gotten to a lot of work to put you there in that circumstance. And we try to wriggle our way out. So he says, hey, I'm going to put you back there because I want you to understand and learn how to persevere even under the pressure, in the midst of the struggle. Because when we do that, we learn perseverance. And perseverance is not just the, the end goal. Perseverance, when it's completed its work, produces something. And this is the, the outcome. In verse 4, it says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So we persevere in the trial, not trying to find, wiggle our way out. But we say, okay, God, you've got me here. I, I need to trust you, and I need to have an attitude of joy because you are working. And listen, in everything that's going on in your life, God is working, even in the tough stuff, even in the hard stuff. Let me say it again. In everything, God is doing something in your life, even in the hard things. And he's, James is simply saying, listen, when you persevere in the midst of the challenge, in the midst of your struggle, and not try to, you know, run away from it, wriggle your way out of it, but you persevere and you, you allow your faith to, you will allow your faith to grow, you will become more mature, complete, you'll, you'll develop as a result of it, and your faith will grow even deeper. And that's true. You, you know, you show me anyone who has a mature faith in, 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 in Jesus, I will show you someone who has struggled. You show me someone who has a, a, a maturing and growing faith, I will show you someone who's endured a trial, endured hardship. That's just how it works. This last week in my life group, we went around and had different people share their uh, spiritual backgrounds. And in every single story, there was, there's some element of tri- trial, struggle, difficulty that matured their faith. And it was a common denominator in the whole group. Hey, there was a challenge, there was a struggle, it pointed me to Jesus. 
It helped me grow in my faith. It brought me to a place that I didn't expect to be, but it was there that I met God, and God walked with me, and I, my faith grew, and I've grown in character, I've grown in maturity, I've grown in depth of faith because of the struggle. We don't get there unless we persevere into it, but when we get there, we say, ah, God, you're good. That's the joy part, where we see God's goodness, even in the midst of the difficulty, that God, again, is the God not just of the good days, but the hard days, and he has a purpose for us in that. Because of that, we can have joy. That's the attitude that we can approach it with. Now, the question then is, well, okay, if that's the attitude and that's the advantage, um, does God offer any resources? Does he offer any help or assistance to us in the midst of our trial, which is the next one, if you want to fill in the blank, if you're trying to guess what's the next A there, let me, let me help you. It's the assistance in trials, assistance in trials that God gives to us. And that's an important thing for us to see, that in the midst of the trial, God doesn't leave us without his resources um, that are available to us. In verse 5, it says, Says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So um, he says, if any, of you, if any of you lacks wisdom, and the assumption is, and you all do lack wisdom, right? That's the kind of the idea. It's not just if, it's a yes, we get it. In the midst of trials, in the midst of challenges, things can get fuzzy, can't they? Things can be confusing. And in the midst of that, God says, listen, I want to offer you my wisdom. And if any of you lacks it and you know it, you recognize it, I'm confused right now, God. I don't see what you're seeing in this, and it's just hard. That the invitation is there for us to come to him and say, God, I need your wisdom. We should come and ask God who what? Gives what? Generously. Isn't that fantastic? Generously to all. You're in the midst of a trial, and you're like, yeah, when I talked to God, you know, and last week, God is not up there saying, you know, yeah, you talked to me last week and I'm all done giving you my wisdom. Okay. So wait a while, maybe a couple more weeks and I'll give you a little bit more. No, that's not God at all. He gives generously every single time you come. He wants to help you. He wants to guide you. That's an opportunity for us to say, God, today, tomorrow, this next hour, I need your wisdom. I need your perspective on things because I'm just confused and I'm just lost. And he gives generously. It doesn't run out. That's fantastic. And it's not only that it gives it generously, but he gives it without finding fault. And I love this because I know that some of us have a hard time asking for help from people because we're afraid of the lecture, right? We're afraid of the I told you so moment, right? We're like, well, if you'd have listened to me the first time, you wouldn't have this problem. And we're afraid of that fault finding, that, that you know, I'm going to be guilty, I'm going to be like, you know, kind of put on the spot. Listen, God is saying, the, the invitation is there, I'm going to give generously and I'm not going to fault find. I'm not going to put you in the spot. I'm just simply saying, come to me. What an incredible invitation in the midst of our struggle and our trials that God wants to offer us his wisdom generously without finding fault and it will be given to you. It's a great promise. But that's the uh, of course, that's the resource that God wants to give to us, but there is um, a, kind of a, a restriction there too that we have to f- follow. It says this in verse six, uh, but when you ask, um, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a, a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. So sorry, not a restriction, it's a requirement. He, this, the requirement to receive the resource is that we believe. That's the whole point here. 
is that you take, take God's wisdom and say, I'm going to receive it. I'm going to trust in it. I'm going to believe in it, not doubt. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown, tossed back and forth by the wind. And this is pretty relatable in our life, isn't it? That when we're facing a trial, we say, God, I want your wisdom. And I'm going to get your wisdom. I'm going to take my wisdom. And I'm going to take a vote. And we're going to see who wins, right? And that person is not ready to fully trust in God. Because we're still holding on to our wisdom, aren't we? We're still saying, yeah, I'm not kind of sure about you, God. That's there, but I'm holding on to my thing. I heard a story of the, a way that you know, people used to catch monkeys. Maybe they still do. I don't know. But they would take a, um, a, a gourd and they would cut off a little top of the a gourd where there's a little hole and put some rice in it and monkeys would come along and they would dip, put their hand, you know, squeeze their hand through that hole, grab the rice, but because of the fist, you know, they would just be trapped. They couldn't pull it out and they wouldn't put it, you know, wouldn't, they would be trapped and, and it would really truly be stuck. And I get that picture of like a monkey kind of like, and then maybe just how we deal with it too. We're like, okay, God, I want your wisdom, but I'm holding on to mine. And if we would just let go, we could be set free and experience the freedom and the life that God has for us, but we get trapped holding on to what we think um, we need to have and what we think is right, and we, we miss it. And that's what this passage is saying. Listen, the resource is there. Now, the requirement is that you trust it and not try to hold on to something that's dragging you down and got you trapped, your own wisdom, your way of thinking, but trusting truly in God, not being ta- tossed back and forth. Then verse 7 says this, the person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So the person who's going back and forth is unstable. The, uh, that word unstable in, in classic Greek is the same word that is used for the drunk. The drunk who's staggering from one side of the street to the other, and you're unstable if you're really trying to do both instead of saying, ah, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm trusting in your wisdom. So that's, that's an important thing for us to get. Now, if, we're, if we now James is saying, here's the resources there. Of course, there's the requirement, trust. But he also understands that in life, when we face trials, if we don't trust God, we end up looking for other things to hold on to, for security that we're trusting into, trusting on. And one of the main things that we tend to um, hold on to for security and trust is, is riches. It's money. It's our resources, so how many of us have at some point thought, man, my life would be so much better if I had a little more money. This, this circumstance wouldn't be so bad if I could just pay this off. This, 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 this challenge would go away if I just had a little bit more. We, we can tend to think that way. And what James wants us to do is to avoid wrong thinking when it comes to riches as the, the answer to dealing with our struggles and dealing with our trials because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help. In verse, uh, so, sorry, the, if you want to fill in the next blank, it's this. Uh, ready? Avoid wrong thinking in trials. He wants to help us. It's so practical. Again, James is so great. He wants us to avoid the wrong thinking in trials and that riches will solve it and be the answer. So he first starts with those who are in humble circumstances in verse 9. He says this, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. So, he basically is saying here, hey, if you're in a humble circumstance, as you have little resources and you're struggling, you're, you feel there's poverty, um, God hasn't abandoned you. In fact, he has so much more for you that he wants you to see even in the midst of your humble circumstance and your struggle. And this is an important thing because the early Christians under the persecution of Herod Agrippa I, uh, they were, you know, 
under great persecution, and it's not just that they had to leave their homes, but they lost businesses, business partners, and people looked at them differently. And as a result of that, it's very easy to get this kind of thinking that if I'm struggling financially and I'm feeling this persecution, that God must be mad at me. That God must be ticked off because I'm not succeeding, I'm not making money, I'm not prospering, therefore God is trying to punish me. And that's not just a first century problem. You realize that? That same kind of creeping, sorry, thinking can creep into our thinking today, can't it? That when things aren't going well for us financially, when we lose our job, well, God must be mad at me. God must be ticked off for things aren't working well. I'm not prospering. I'm not seeing the things flow. I'm not as wealthy as I should be. That God's, I've done something wrong and God's withholding from me because I, there's something wrong. Do you, you get that? And it's a wrong way of thinking. But it's an easy thing that we can get to into when we're struggling, we're in trials. And so it's, a, it's, it's just, but it's just wrong. So he's saying, listen, in your humble circumstance, guess what? God has got not just, you need to, ought to take pride in your high position. That is that um, God hasn't forgotten you. That he says, you, you, you know, you come to me, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That you have a, a real relationship, a new identity. You have promise of eternity. You have a God who wants to walk with you currently. That you're a child of God. The new, the high position is that you're now a child of the king. And that you have a place in his kingdom. That's the high position. Oh, we, gotta, we can't forget that. In the midst of the moments we feel like, oh, God's abandoned me or I'm doing things wrong. And that's what he's trying to get at. So again, your hope is not in your resources. It's in, it's in God. Verse 10, the opposite of that is the rich person should take pride in their humiliation since they pass away like the wildflower. So he's saying, listen, the opposite is true that we sh- if you've got a lot of resources, that you shouldn't be thinking to yourself, well, I'm set then. I'm good. Because the reality is that can go away too. And he goes on in verse 11, and he says this, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So uh, he's saying there at the beginning, the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. This is a part of uh, scripture that I have just had to take by faith for many years of my life, okay? Having grown up in the Pacific Northwest, this idea of scorching heat that withers things away was not my experience, okay? Even growing up on the western side of this state in the land of Squish, uh, it wasn't like... um, the scorching heat wasn't a reality. Now I've moved to the dry cities. I understand the scorching heat a little bit better, okay? I understand how it withers things and in a new capacity. So I had to take it by faith. Now I see it in reality. But the whole point is this. Hey, listen, it's going to fade. It will pass away. And if you put your hope in your uh, possessions, in your riches, in your retirement, listen, it's ultimately going to go away. So that is not our hope. That's not our security. Um, There's something greater. And so in the trials, don't hang on to that stuff. It goes away. God has a greater reward for us, which is that final uh, part of this passage, that God has something greater than even riches. He wants us to attain uh, attain the reward in our trials, attain reward in our trials. And it's not just um, money, resources, it's wealth, it's something far greater. In verse 12, he says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the word blessed, it just means it's genuinely, genuine happiness for those people who say, yeah, I'm trusting in God and I'm trusting and persevering even in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of the trial that I'm in. And um, that word, uh, 
trial. It could be also translated uh, temptation. And that's the reality. In the midst of our trials, if we don't trust God, it can become a temptation and we can lose it. But, but if we trust God, then we've passed the test and our faith is approved. It's revealed. It's, it's, a, it's a way of showing that it's, it's, um, it's a genuine faith. And that's what James is really wanting us to see, that when we persevere under a trial and we trust God, it's a test for us. It reveals that there's real genuine faith in practice, and he wants us to experience that. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, the word uh, to be approved or test is the word dokimas. And that word is a, would be very familiar for uh, first century Christians because it was written all over th- things. It was the word that mean, meant approved. And so, for instance, if a potter uh, cast a pot and put it, you know, glazed it, put it in the kiln and, and pulled it out, if it was no, if it was no cracks, it was sturdy, um, they would write on the bottom of it, dokimas, approved, tested, and it's, it's sturdy. Now, that same potter, if he took a pot and he put it in the kiln, all that kind of stuff, brings out and it's, it's cracked or it's chipped, but it's still, you know, somewhat, you know, together, they would flip it over and write the word adokimas. It's, it's not approved. But they could still sell it, um, but it just wouldn't be worth as much as the ones that were approved and tested. And you could buy the, the non-approved uh, pottery, but you wouldn't put anything of value in it, would you? Because you'd be afraid that it would break. But the, the pot that has been tested, you could put things of great treasure in it. And that's what God is, is saying to us. Listen, when you have a faith that's been tested and approved, God then wants to offer you his great treasure, reward. And that is his joy in life. And, and it's the crown of life that is the reward. It's not just eternal um, uh, blessing, which is true, but it's also you know, uh, present experience of joy. In, in a relationship with God that he wants us to experience. It's having a tested faith that's been approved, that's revealed to be real, refined, and reflected in the life of other people. That's the, the whole joy. And James, no one does this better than James because James himself experienced great persecution, great struggle, and great trial, and he passed the test. And he passed the test, and as a result of it, he was trusted with much, and a result of that being trusted with much, he had great impact in the world and in the people around him. But people wanted to stop James um, from, you know, sharing about Jesus, and especially Annas, the high priest at the time. And Annas, the high priest at the time, was the, is the grandson of, the, of Annas, the high priest, who was there during, you know, Jesus' uh, crucifixion. But this Annas saw a, a break in Roman leadership in around 62 AD and thought, okay, this is my moment to grab James and to kind of crush the church that's, that's growing in, in Jerusalem. So I'm going I'm to grab James and certainly James will um, deny his faith, deny that Jesus Christ, his Lord, um, if his life is at stake. And so he takes James and he takes James to the, the pinnacle of the, the temple and he takes James to the pinnacle of the temple, and, he, and he, the challenge is to, to refute um, Jesus, the, the claims that Jesus is Lord. But James doesn't do that. He's, he's experienced trials, and he's passed the test. He has real faith. It's been revealed. It's been refined, and he's not giving up on his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of that, Annas ordered to have him pushed off the highest point of the, of the temple, and he fell to the ground and was crushed. When he fell, 
However, people came around and there were still signs of life. And some traditions say that he got up and he started to pray for those who were persecuting him. Uh, and it was at that point that people took stones and clubs and they, 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 they beat him to death. Now, again, Annas, the high priest, was thinking, good, James is gone. The, the, the church will, 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 will kind of crumble as a result. But the opposite was true. Because James had genuine faith, He'd passed the test. It didn't crush the church. The church continued to flourish and grow, and more and more people were, in, in fact, uh, being more bold in their faith because of the faith example of James. And in the same way, God wants us, in the midst of our trials, to say, God, you're still bigger than that. You're still bigger than the trial. That I can have a new attitude. I can approach it um, with joy because in that trial... I, And if I persevere in it, you can deepen my faith. You can mature me. And as a result of that, you can, um, and because of your wisdom, you can make my life matter. You're ready if I pass the test to deposit treasure that could be then displayed to the world around me. This is what James wants for you and he wants for me. Let's take a moment and let's thank God for his word and for the testimony of James. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you how you use James and his trial to be a testimony to us. We thank you for his teaching that even in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of, of, of trials, that we can approach them differently. We can approach them with joy because of who you are and the promises that you've made. We thank you, God, for your wisdom. Help us to be people who look to you and receive the generous wisdom that you offer to us. And Lord, help us as well to not just receive it, but to experience the joy in the life that you have for us. We, we um, come to you, God, humbly. We come to you thankfully for not abandoning us, but coming to us, suffering for us so that we might experience life. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.